0: Okay. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Investing with IBD, sponsored by Interactive Brokers. Today is February 10th, 2021. I'm your host, Arusha Paris, and today we have Sam Stovall on the show. Sam is an author and the chief investment strategist of CFRA Research. Thanks for being here, Sam.
1: Oh, happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me.
0: On today's podcast, we're going to talk about the current markets, We are going to talk about the Super Bowl theory, and then we will end the episode with a few current ideas. So let's get right into the current market. The market is in a confirmed uptrend. We have four distribution days on S&P 500, zero on the NASDAQ. Sam, what are your thoughts on this market?
1: Well, the market just keeps wanting to go up. It's uh, taking advantage of the stimulus that it's been uh, experiencing and, you know, basically hoping that we're going to get more of. The expectation, I think, is around $1.5 trillion for the Biden package that will probably make its way through Congress. Um, But, you know, a lot of questions um, arise right now as to whether we are in the beginnings of a speculative bubble.
0: Yeah, yeah. it's i'm not sure how many well in my opinion i'm not sure how many questions there are when he sees some of these stocks they're going through the roof uh it seems like they're going up like 30 percent a day and of course we had the whole short interest uh uh thing going on a few weeks ago Uh, you do bring up a good point about this speculation what what are your thoughts on 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 that with because that doesn't happen that often right
1: no, not really. I mean, you, you do sort of think back to the nineteen nineties uh, with the tech bubble, uh, but there are a lot of differences. I mean, back then we thought that tech was cheap, trading at sixty times forward earnings. Now we're looking at a number that's half that, and we're worried about speculation.
0: Oh, that that's a that's a really good point uh, right there. Um, so let's get in because you have been doing this for for a while now. Let let's let's get into your background. You know, walk us through. You know, how you got to your position at Chief Investment Strategist at CFRA Research?
1: Well, sort of a circuitous route. Uh, I went to a Division Three college called Muhlenberg, and I was going to be a social studies teacher. I was going to teach uh, social studies on the secondary level, meaning uh, high school and junior high. I was going to coach football, and I was going to grow oh. a potbelly, and I've only accomplished one of those goals. <laughs>
0: That's excellent. And and so then how did you end up getting into the market uh, as opposed to being uh, a teacher in high school in social studies?
1: Well, first off, the uh, the baby boom bubble had already worked its way through the school system when I graduated. So believe it or not, I had listened to my father and took some computer courses and some business courses, economics, statistics, and so forth, and was then able to find a job at Control Data. Um, a company similar to IBM, selling and installing computer time-sharing systems. Uh, Then I went to NYU, got my MBA at night, uh, and decided, you know what, I think I do want to work on Wall Street, and my first job was at Argus Research, uh, and then after that, moved over to S&P.
0: And and your your father was also on Wall Street, Right.
1: Correct. He came to Wall Street back in 1953 at EF Hutton uh, and was oh, wow. there for many, many years. Um, and th- those who are, have enough tenure on Wall Street to remember, Pop was one of Louis Rukeyser's elves on Wall Street Week.
0: <laughs> and that's a, that's a really cool little story right there. So, so you were working at S&P 500 or at Standard & Poor, sorry. And um, how long were you there for?
1: I was there for more than 27 years. I'm still trying to figure out if that's a felony or a misdemeanor. Uh, but in October of 2016, S&P decided to get out of the business that had started back in 1860. There really was a guy named Henry Varnum Poor who wrote uh, research reports on railroads. They merged with the Standard Statistics Company in 1941 were thinking about calling themselves poor standards, but then decided, no, maybe S&P would be better. Um, but S&P decided we wanna focus on ratings, indexes and data. And mm-hmm. so they sold the equity research department to CFRA, which is an independent equity research firm that's been around for 25 years.
0: Okay, and, and uh, so you've been there for now, what, four or five years or so in that position?
1: Correct, four years. Okay.
0: And and now, w- w- one interesting thing is you, you had a chance to actually g- teach, right? You actually got to satisfy that other... Uh, ambition that you had years ago, you got you got to be a professor for a little while at a, at a college.
1: That's right. Uh, because I, I got my CFP designation back in the early 1990s. Um, a friend of mine said, Hey, Sam, would you be interested in teaching a financial planning course at Marymount Manhattan College? Uh, and I said, yes. And his wife, who was the head of the finance department said, well, whatever his qualifications, and my friend said, he's a CFP. And she said, done. So I taught for two semesters and then she gave me the bad news that I was not going to be invited back. And I said, what did I do wrong? She said, actually, on the contrary, you did too right because now the tenured professors are fighting over who's going to take your concentrated winter and summer courses. So I guess I left with a badge of honor.
0: (laughs) That's right. You you proved that there was actually a need for students to to learn about financial planning and uh, finance exactly. in general, I guess exactly. So, at, 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 uh, as a chief investment strategist, now you you ha- have a, there are a number of analysts working in the group. Uh, how how do you how, how do you work with them? How do you uh, kind of synthesize all of their reports that they're uh, coming up with?
1: Well, what I try to do is add value not only to our clients, but also to our analysts. I'm not going to tell them anything they don't already know from a fundamental perspective about the stocks, industries, and sectors that they follow. But what I do offer is some rules, rules rules-based investing that they can then apply to help them make better timing decisions. I like to say that uh, fundamentals tell you what, but technicals tell you when and how far. And I sort of say, well, quant sort of does that as well. So mm-hmm. I'm a big believer in momentum, in correlation, and in seasonality. And so I try to put together models and ideas based on those that help our clients as well as our analysts.
0: Yeah, and, and that does bring up a good point where you know the, the, the tech route and the quant route, obviously, the- that's always really interesting to hear because a lot of people who go into Wall Street, they are strictly fundamental. You know, that they're, they're going off the valuations. But doing that hybrid, what, what really kind of inspired you to explore some of those other routes?
1: Well, I think it's because since I really was not going to be offering any fundamental guidance to our analysts or our clients, my thought was, well, I can either go technical, or I can go quantitative. Mm-hmm. And then I read the book, Uh, there were two books that really influenced me the most. One is The Stock Trader's Almanac. Uh, For those who are not familiar, it's basically a lot of um, putting the stock market's actions to the calendar, what normally happens, et cetera. And uh, it's where you can also go to find uh, many old sayings that are found on Wall Street and whether they still have applicability. I also read a book called... um, Let's see, What Works on Wall Street by James O'Shaughnessy, where he went back to 1950 and looked at both fundamentals and technicals and said, what works best? And from a technical perspective, he was saying from a momentum viewpoint, look to those groups uh, that have the highest momentum, not the lowest momentum. So I started doing work on that um, to substantiate what he said, but also to try to add to it.
0: Yeah. And so now there are a lot of times and, and, and one of the truisms in the market is sell in May, go away uh, and and the get yourself by. I can't remember <laughs> trying to plank on the October <laughs> one, but uh, but you want you really want to be buy, buying from October to April, selling in May, go away. But uh, last year didn't necessarily work out that way. Right
1: that's right well uh, the the old adage is sell in may and go away do not return until saint ledger's day yes. which is a horse race in england in late september uh, so why is it that we get out in may and then get back in in the beginning of november well it's also because investors get spooked by october uh because five of the last ten bear markets ended in october It has about twice the volatility as uh, the average for all 11 other months, et cetera. So investors basically say, you know what? Um, I'd rather get back in when things calm down. And also the Stock Traders' Almanac um, talks about that with the best six months of the year, November through April. So I have embraced the sell in May uh, idea, but with a little bit of a twist. Instead of saying retreat, I recommend that investors rotate. And in a book that I wrote called The Seven Rules of Wall Street, one of those rules is sell in May and go where? And the answer is from November through April, you want to be leaning cyclically, technology, consumer discretionary, industrials and materials. Whereas May through October, you want to be leaning defensively, consumer staples and healthcare. Uh, Because I guess as the old saying, goes, uh, when the going gets tough, the tough go eating, smoking, and drinking. And if they overdo it, they have to go to the doctor. So traditionally, you know, you have weak periods, periods of uncertainty, at least in the third quarter, and especially in September. Uh, And so investors say, you know what, maybe it's best that I end up being on the sidelines. And the returns have borne that out. Since World War II, the average price change from May through October has been less than 1.5%, whereas from November through April, it's been close to 7%.
0: And, but last year was a little bit different, right? And it was more of what you call a bizarro market.
1: Yes, to borrow from the Seinfeld episode, uh, bizarro means upended. Uh, And what happened was that normally you have a good cyclical move from November through April. But as we entered the beginning of 2020, COVID struck, uh, and we ended up having gravitation toward a lot of the defensive areas. Uh, The market went into a 34% bear market in a record 33 calendar days. Uh, So... It basically upended uh, the tradition of being in the cyclical sectors through April. But then when the Fed started cutting interest rates, promising to do whatever it needed to, to be done, uh, then investors went right back into equities and gravitated toward the more cyclical sectors and uh, entered into that V-shaped recovery. Mm-hmm. So it was the defensives that did poorly as the market recovered from what it lost getting back to break even by the way on August 18th the third fastest on record of recouping a bear lo- a bear market loss
0: wow yeah that yeah it, it last year just just uh, really once again proved that you know anything can happen in in the market and so you always have to have a strategy
1: sure well it's a good example that uh, you really never want to be totally out of the market because think about it A point and a half uh, annualized is better than you would get in cash. Uh, And also, you know, if you engage in the the actual rotation, uh, then you'd have to be paying ordinary income taxes because it would only be a six-month holding period. Um, So I say, no, you're better off sticking with stocks. So you're always in the market. Uh, It's like saying I'm at the amusement park, but I'm not on the roller coaster the whole time. Half of the time, I'm in the the merry-go-round or the teacups.
0: Yeah, I like that. Of course, I don't like the teacups very much, though. <laughs> so the market is in an uptrend. Growth stocks continue to hang in there. But remember, we are still in earnings season. Let's take a quick break. But when we return, we are going to talk about the Super Bowl theory. We'll be back. Build a balanced portfolio with Interactive Brokers fractional shares. Now you can invest in the stocks that you want, regardless of share price. Pick any available U.S. stock and decide how much you want to invest it's that easy. Interactive Brokers offers fractional shares on more U.S. stocks, ETFs, and ADRs than any other broker. Start investing today with fractional shares. Learn more at ibkr.com slash fractions. Sam Stovall is our guest on Investing with IBD, sponsored by Interactive Brokers. Okay, Sam, let's uh, let, let's first start off with what we were talking about in the, the previous segment, seasonal rotation. And and. and you have a uh, a pacer etf right that is based on that
1: that's right um that uh I did a lot of traveling with S&P indices to uh, financial forums and uh, Pacer ETF representatives also happened to be in the audience when I was talking about this seasonal rotation strategy. And uh, they decided, hey, let's create an ETF based on this strategy so that because it being in an ETF, you don't experience the tax consequences as you would if you did the buying and selling on your own. So S-Z-N-E uh is the ticker for this seasonal rotation strategy and you can learn more about it at uh paceretfs.com
0: and okay so they they're essentially what you were talking about uh in the the previous segment uh, of of rotating from defensive stocks to growth stocks based on the the seasons they're automatically doing it uh through, throughout the year
1: exactly so um October 31st, they take the entire portfolio divided into four equal parts and populate those with the companies in tech, consumer discretionary, industrials, and materials. And then on April 30th, they sell uh, those stocks and then they split the portfolio into two, 50% in consumer staple stocks, 50% in healthcare stocks. So you're always invested. It's just that you're either leaning cyclically or defensively.
0: Yeah, and, and it does bring up a, another question uh, there, and I'm I'm sure that you have you, uh, you know seen this too. It's it's last 10, 10 plus years or so, it's just been amazing at how many ETFs, how many different strategies uh, that uh, based uh, you uh, that are enacted by ETFs are out there uh, these days. Versus you know before that, there are there are a lot of mutual funds, and that was kind of the main way. Uh, for the, the passive investing. You know, what, what are your thoughts on, on that kind of growth right there?
1: Well, I think the, the growth is there because of the flexibility that the ETFs offer over the mutual funds. Uh, ETFs, you can buy and sell multiple times during the day, whereas mutual funds are only bought or sold at the end of the day. Also, and this is most important in my perspective, at the end of a year, you could have a down year for a mutual, bu- mutual fund, but still get hit with a large capital gains tax consequence. Whereas with an ETF, most of the time you have no uh, capital gains um, exposure uh, at the end of the year. Uh, it's only when you sell that you then have either long or short term capital gains that you have to pay tax on.
0: Oh, I mean, that, that is a, a great point, and, and it makes a lot of sense why that, 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 uh, that instrument has really exploded over the last 10 years. Uh, so let's get into, you know, th- this was actually perfect timing here, but let, let's get into the, the Super Bowl theory. Uh, as, as we know, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers won a few days ago, the Super Bowl, beating the Kansas City Chiefs. Uh, walk us through that. What does that mean when an NFC team wins?
1: Well, this is the, uh, the Super Bowl indicator was created by a gentleman named Leonard Coppett um, back in the early 1970s. And he noticed, gee, whenever a team from the old NFL, uh, now in the NFC, uh, won the Super Bowl, the market went up. And whenever an old AFL team won, then the market went down. Uh, there were a couple of asterisk teams, such as the Pittsburgh Steelers, right. which were original NFL teams are now in the AFL. So they were counted as if they were in, still in the NFC. So oh, basically, perfect. NFC, the market goes up, uh, AFC, the market goes down. And it did fairly well. Uh, but then um, Leonard sort of stopped following it when it hit a dry spell. And then my father picked it up and really started running with it for quite some time. And now it seems as if it's a Wall Street favorite, uh, showing that Wall Street does have a sense of humor uh, because there is correlation without causation. Uh, but it's just something fun to talk about and to write about every year.
0: And, and so with, with Tampa Bay winning, we uh, tw- 2021 should be a pretty good year in the market.
1: Yes, uh, the a- average average, uh, uh, Frequency, meaning that if it pointed to an up year, this indicator was correct 84% of the time uh, since inception. Now, whenever it pointed to a, a down year, because then AFC team won, uh, it wasn't as good. It was correct only 53% of the time. Uh, but when you look at the price change, whenever an NFC team was uh, the victorious, implying that the market would go up, not only was the batting average at 84%, but the average price advance was 11.7%. So you had a very strong price performance uh, when the NFC team won.
0: Yeah, well, uh, you might need to modify that to add when Tom Brady wins. <laughs> uh, yeah, how does the market react to? That's uh, right. Now, so so that that's, one, that that's one really interesting and fun kind of correlation to, to look at. Now, another one, and, and we had Jeffrey Hirsh on a few weeks ago from the Stock Traders Almanac, and uh, this is before all the, all the trifecta was completed. We had two out of three trifecta when, when uh, Jeff was on the show, but the third part, how January ends, the January barometer, unfortunately for the S&P 500, we finished down a little bit. So that's two out of three. Right. Any, any thoughts on that?
1: Yes. Well, first off, I owe a lot to Jeff and his father, Yale. Uh, I've learned a lot from the Stock Traders' Almanac. It gives me something to write about quite frequently as well. Uh, but the, the trifecta you're talking about are, one, the Santa Claus rally. We did have an up signal there. That's the last five days of one calendar year beginning uh, two days of a new calendar year. Then we have the uh, early warning signal, the first five days of January. Uh, and then you have that followed up with the January barometer, as goes January, so goes the year. Well, January was down 1.1%. So while the first two were up, January was down, but it uh, does, is not as bad as it might seem. Okay. Uh, historically, whenever that has happened, the market has continued to rise an average of 4.1%. And was up seventy-three percent of the time, so the batting average was not different at seventy-three percent of the time, but the average price change was essentially cut in half. So okay. it usually goes from a great year to a good year.
0: Okay, and, you know, I'll, I'll take that, especially after last year, how, how strong that that year was. Uh, well, Twenty twenty-one, if if it goes, sure. yeah, you know, if it goes half of that. That'll still right. be I'll still pretty good. <laughs> now, uh, you. Know, so let's talk about just bull markets, right? We, we, we had that quickest bear market, as you mentioned earlier. On, on average, you know, for, for Investors Daily, on average, we look at bull markets. They're around three and a half uh, years long. And so hopefully we're just in year two. We're starting, about to start year two of the, this bull market. You know what? What are your thoughts on on that, or just kind of the length of bull markets?
1: Sure. Well, actually, bull markets last longer than three years. Three okay. years is actually uh, a, a the the third year is a very important year because a lot of bull markets have have. <laughs> suffered early demises in the third year, but on average, because we had the most recent one last 10 years, um, actually closer to 11 years, uh, what we find is that bull markets last about five years plus. Um, So what it it says is that uh, on average, we end up advancing an additional three years after Recouping all that we lost in the prior bear market. So we got, we got back to break even on August 18th Mm -hmm. after suffering that 34% decline in only 33 calendar days. So history would imply, but obviously not guarantee that um, we have uh, at least until the third quarter of 2023 for this bull market to remain intact doesn't mean we can't have pullbacks which are five to ten percent declines. they happen on average every nine months or corrections 10 to twenty percent declines they occur essentially every 24 months. but what is most important in my opinion is the speed of recovery. on average it's taken only one and a half months to get back to break even from pullbacks, five to ten percent declines and believe it or not, only four months to recoup all that we lost after declines of 10 to 20%. So my advice to investors is you are better off buying than you are bailing during market declines like that.
0: Yeah, when, when you are in strong uptrends, the, the buy the dip, buy on pullbacks is always a, a good strategy. So that that that's great to hear. Hopefully, you know, 2023, I'll take it. That that would be sure. It's that, like
1: the seven percent solution. The average pullback is seven percent. The average. Mm-hmm. Correction is 14%. The median bear market is 28%. They're all divisible by seven. So, gee, maybe uh, put money to work at every 7% uh, threshold.
0: And, and you have somehow found a way to tie it back into football, which I really like. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's talk about uh, relative strength, because part of your strategy and, and part of the way, way uh, at your firm and, and how you look at it is... Uh, You're looking at relative strength and your momentum, as you mentioned before, and you also have a sector scorecard. You know, talk about some of those and concepts there and and why those are important.
1: Sure. Uh, Well, the uh, first off, the the, the, from the book, What Works on Wall Street? You know, looking at uh, relative strength, uh, what James O'Shaughnessy showed was that the best look back period was 12 months in terms of consistency of beating the market. And I know that IBD looks at something similar. So really we're just sort of uh, preaching to the choir here. But but what I do is every week, I put together an S&P 1500 scorecard. Now the 1500 consists of the the large cap 500, mid cap 400, small cap 600. There are 11 sectors and 147 sub-industries. So with each one of these sectors and sub-industries, I give a score, five, four, three, two, one, uh, like a movie or restaurant review, five is best, one is worst. And it's a normal distribution. The best 10% on a rolling 12-month basis are given a five. The next 20% get a four. The middle 40% get a three. The next 20% get a two. And the bottom 10% get a one. Uh, And obviously, the the question is, how well does this work? Well, going back to 1996, which is as far back as S&P has sub-industry-level data, while the market was up 7.8% on a compound annual growth rate basis, the top five, meaning the uh, the top 10%, those ranked five, uh, scored 13.5%. Those ranked four got 10.8%. Those ranked two were 6.5 and those ranked one were 6.0. So in a sense, like whitewater rafting, let the market take you where it wants to go has proven um, pretty profitable uh, over this near 25 year period.
0: No, and and that's exactly what we found in, in our research too. So let's take a quick break, but remember, knowing where you are in the market cycle and also apparently knowing who wins the Super Bowl can help you improve your success in the markets. Coming up next, we are going to go more into this uh, sector scorecard, and we will also talk about a few ideas. Stay tuned.
1: Interactive Brokers charges 1.59% for a $100,000 margin loan. Do you know how much your broker charges? Upwards from 6.82% at Fidelity or Schwab to as high as 7.45 to 7.75% at ETrade or Ameritrade. Move your account to Interactive Brokers and save at least $5,200, or much more if you're trading big bucks.
0: We are back with Sam Stovall on investing with IBD, sponsored by Interactive Brokers. Okay, Sam, let's uh, continue with the, the sector scorecard and we can generate some ideas from that too. Uh, so um, let's look at the one of the later ones that you've had here with the, the S&P uh, 1500 sub industry group and talk about some of the ones that have gotten some five stars, please.
1: Sure. Um, Well, first off, this uh, Sector Scorecard is found on our MarketScope Advisor platform. Uh, We offer free trials to our research. If you go to cfraresearch.com, you can sign up for a free trial and you can find this Sector Scorecard. If you're too cheap to try a free trial, go to spindices.com and you can find the scorecard for the S&P 500 free of charge. Uh, so this way you don't have to buy anything you can get uh, the S&P 500 scorecard and there too you find um, the the um, relative strength rankings for the sectors and sub-industries but what I'm finding is that uh, it's in many ways it's still consumer discretionary it's still technology but also a smattering of materials stocks in there as well Mm -hmm. Uh, so my most recent report called EPS Optimism uh, the final um, area, if you will, of that report was talking about revisiting this relative strength ranking, and the those groups with the highest rankings um, I came up with stocks that serve as proxies for these sub industries. So companies like Deer in the agricultural and farm machinery area, FedEx in air freight and logistics, Dana Corp in air par- uh, auto parts and equipment. Um, Best Buy is in computer and electronic retail. Freeport MacMoran doing very, very well in the copper space. Um, A name that you really don't think about too much. Eastman Chemical in the diversified chemical category is holding up quite well. Um, Names you might uh, not be surprised to hear about. eBay in internet and direct marketing retail. KLA Corp in semiconductor equipment. And Apple in the tech, hardware, storage, and peripherals group. So, a lot of names that are well known, not so well known. Um, there were more, but uh, I figured I wouldn't overload you with names.
0: I mean, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I mean, we have Apple up right here, and this is a, a stock that's been coming up on our screens uh, plenty of times. Uh, now, their relative strength actually for us is, is a little low right now. It's we have a relative strength rating of a 67. On it. So over the last 12 months, it's only outperformed 67% of the stocks in the database. But I think that's that's more a reflection of how how crazy this market is more than mm-hmm. anything.
1: Well, or maybe what you say is you could use the scorecard to get an idea as yes. to what groups are doing well. Mm-hmm. And then you could go dive into the IBD individual company rankings to cherry pick what is in there. Exactly. So. You know, there are a variety of ways. What I did was I picked those that have the highest stars ranking. That's uh, CFRA's stock appreciation ranking system. Um, So in that case, I just defer to the analyst. But if you wanted to carry the technical, the momentum a little further, you know, you could look at the scorecard for a sub-industry idea and then look at the IBD for the individual stock. Yeah,
0: and and that brings up a a, a really good point of uh, really fitting... uh, fitting a, or finding a strategy that fits your personality. Right. And, and, and Sam, when we were talking about, uh, when we were talking earlier, a few days ago, yeah, you, you were talking about the emotions of investing. Right. And, and how, how that can throw, and we all know this, it's like, how, how can it just throw you off?
1: Oh, Talk absolutely. about how
0: you've managed that. Yeah,
1: sure. Well, the best bit of investment advice I ever got, believe it or not, came from Clint Eastwood. When he was playing Dirty Harry in the movie Magnum Force, he kept mumbling through grit teeth, a man's got to know his limitations. So I was thinking, well, what are my limitations? And my ego will only allow me to admit to three. I am so impatient. I get upset if I miss a slot in a revolving door. I am so indecisive that my favorite color is plaid. And I am so emotional that in this day and age of instant information, I can experience both fear and greed at the exact same moment. So now that isn't necessarily bad. What's good is if you acknowledge what your weaknesses are and then try to work around them, extract them from your decision-making process. So that's why I like the um, Stock Traders' Almanac. That's why I like James O'Shaughnessy's work or any other work where it's rules-based. Yes. So in my book, The seven rules of Wall Street, there are seven rules that are old sayings like, let your winners ride, but cut your losers short. As goes January, so goes the year. Sell in May and go away. And what I did was I went back and I said, do these adages still work? And if so, how would you employ them today? Um, And very simply, that's what the scorecard does, the let your winners ride is basically say, every month, look back 12 months and own those that are in the top 10% um, and basically throw out those that fall out. And over time, you will end up outperforming the market, realizing that it doesn't work every year. It's more like outperforming two out of every three years and that you do have dry spells like the Super Bowl theory. uh, It has not worked over the last, what, five years or so. Uh, but my belief is that Murphy's law applies to investing as well. The year you give up on a time-tested strategy is the year in which it'll start working all over again.
0: Yeah, no, It, it is amazing at how well that works. Or even if you give up on a stock, uh, and you're like, oh, this, this, uh, uh, this is never going to go up. Right when you get out of it, there it goes. It takes off without you and, and you're kind of just left behind. Mm-hmm. Um, and And so- with going back to that rules-based approach, because that's exactly what we do here at IBD too. Uh, you know, one thing is that what I've learned o- over the years is that, you know, you're, you're following a mechanical approach as much as possible, but the emotions never truly go away. Right. I mean, right. talk, talk about, to talk about a, a time maybe where you, you, you let the emotions get the best of you in, in investing. Did you, can, can you recall a time recently that you did that?
1: Oh, sure, sure. And actually, uh, I'm going to mention the ETF again. And my disclosure is I own the ETF and I benefit should people buy it.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: but the I'll ETF right being here. S-Z-N-E, um, basically, um, I find that people can be their own worst enemies Um And even if they follow a rules-based strategy, it is human nature to want to overrule the rules. Yes, yeah. Um, Because here we were in 2019, and we had come off of the near bear market uh, that ended on Christmas Eve of 2018. Um, We call it a near bear market because on a closing basis, it did not eclipse the 20% decline threshold. That's right. um, so here we were, end of April, the market was soaring ahead, and I would have said, well, gee, I'm not going to switch into de- the defensive sectors, because they're going to get crushed, um, because the market's going to continue to go up, because the momentum is there, but the, the strategy, the um, SZNE ticker uh, ETF moved into defensive, and wouldn't you know that May ended up uh, giving back a lot of the gains that we saw in the first yep. four months of the year then we were looking at defensiveness in that may through october period and weakness continued into the late october so i'm sure a lot of people said well you know what i'm not going to get out um, of the defensives because things just don't look good at all um Yet the strategy rotated into the cyclicals. And at least until the COVID crisis struck, uh, it was the, the wise move um, by basically following the rules uh, and not trying to overrule the rules. So I, I think in general, rules are there for a reason. Yeah. Um, it's almost like saying, if you're not going to follow your doctor's advice, then why go to the doctor?
0: <laughs> that, that is a really good point but but a lot of people do that right and
1: mm-hmm, sure. now I,
0: and, and and it does as you're explaining that strategy I, it really brought up another question or, or really just kind of a to get your thoughts on this I, I think and we, we say this and I'll say this to, to people too you really have to pick a strategy and stick with it for a while too yes. uh, you ha- right so yeah talk, I- we'll talk about that
1: well, you've got to stick with a strategy that fits your personality. Mm-hmm. Um, let's say, you know, like I was saying, you, you don't want to be on the roller coaster the whole time. Well, then maybe half of the time you want to be in the merry-go-round. Okay. Well, then you do want something that switches uh, maybe every six months, like SZNE. Or maybe you say, no, I want to set it and forget it. Uh, well, a strategy called what I call my free lunch portfolio is 50% tech. consumer staples, because believe it or not, since the inception of these sectors in 1990, um, what we find is that the compound annual growth rate for the strategy exceeded that for tech at much lower volatility. So not only did you get an absolute performance that beat tech, but you've got a risk adjusted return that crushed tech by itself. Uh, So let's say you say, I want exposure to tech, but at the same time, uh, I want some exposure to defensiveness. Well, that's the free lunch portfolio. Uh, If you want to be more active, however, but still take a balanced approach, you could look at what I call my barbell portfolio, which at the beginning of every year, You buy the ten worst performers from last year, and the ten best performers from last year. And when I say performers, I mean the sub industries in the S and P 500. Um, So, you know what you could be doing is basically saying, "Oh, you know, yes, I like uh, agricultural and farm machinery, air freight, a lot of those names Mm -hmm. that I had mentioned." Right, right, right. But, But you know what? Last year, airlines. Hotels, resorts, uh, retail REITs, the oil and gas sector just got crushed. So maybe really I should be buying into those as well. Well, that's what the purpose of the barbell portfolio is. You let your winners ride from last year, but also buy low, sell high from last year. And through through today, the bottom 10 sub industries are up 12.9% versus four and a half for the market. And the top ten are up eight and a half percent. So so far yeah. so good. The strategy is working pretty well.
0: Yeah, no that that uh, is is really interesting. And it, once again, I mean, it's if there really is a strategy for everyone, you just gotta take some time to figure out your own personality yep, there. Up yep. uh, And you, know, you you mentioned another really important thing for investors uh, is the volatility, right? So. There, there are plenty of investors, and probably uh, I would say, even uh, maybe the majority of investors, they might even be willing to sacrifice a little bit of return in, in return for less volatility because that fear, once again, can scare
1: people out. Oh, and I'm I'm certain that fear is a greater motivator than greed, yes. uh, because what do we say? the The stock market takes the escalator on the way up, but the elevator on the way
0: down. Yeah, I think that's the nicer version these days. I think there's there a more a worse version before, but that, I think that's good, right?
1: Sure. And so the thought is, well, obviously, you know, people are more worried about losing money. I always found it interesting that. Um, like with the financial crisis of 07 through 09, um, you know, you, you check your sister-in-law theory, which is the minute she gets out uh, is the minute that you uh, that you know that the bottom is in place. Um, <laughs> that's, that's and true. the flip side is your brother-in-law theory that, you know, if he gets out at that time, every advisor has one client. Um that ends up being their barometer, male or female, young or old. There's Mm -hmm. one person out there who has um, zero tolerance and they're usually the one that wants to sell at the bottom. Um, So my feeling is, you know, have a strategy, not only for when the market is going up, but what are you going to do or not do when the market goes down?
0: Yeah. And going off that, uh, just get, being aware of hearing normal people, how they react to the stock market, I, I'm, I'm sure you're hearing this. Uh, I, I've definitely seen it. I've, I know others have uh, have experienced it, too. I'm starting to get phone calls from relatives, from other friends I haven't heard from in years and years, and they're asking about the stock market. How do I get invested in this? Exactly, yes. Right.
1: Uh, my, I have two nieces. Who have never invested before, yeah. and they asked me, Uncle Sam, I want to get you know get in, in the stock market. What do I do? Yeah. And all I could think of was Joe Kennedy or Bernard Baruch getting advice from their shoeshine person. Yes. Uh, so yeah, that that is a concern. We'll look back. Uh, we will look back not only um, at those indicators, but we'll look at uh, the market um, market cap to GDP at 124 percent. We'll look at the uh, the Russell 2000 being 40 percent above its 200-day moving average, wow. which is wow. the highest on record. Wow. Um, you'll look at 98 percent of the sub industries in the S and P 500 trading above their 200-day moving average. Um, you know, every time we've had a decline of 10 percent or more, it was preceded by that magnitude of sub industries above that threshold. But if you remember your logic 101 not every time that we reach that threshold, did we fall into a decline of 10% or more. Mm-hmm. But every 10% or more, it's like all trout are fish, but not all fish are trout. So.
0: <laughs> yes. I mean, yeah, you have to, you kind of keep in the back of your, your head, because there are obviously a lot of sentiment indicators are to the extreme, uh, or were to the extreme, maybe this recent pullback that we had a few weeks ago, uh, resolved a little bit of it. But you know, you always want to keep those in the back of your head. But you still listen to the market and, and let the market guide you.
1: Sure. Absolutely.
0: So there are a few ideas that are worth considering and a lot of Wall Street wisdom here. Uh, thanks, Sam, for joining us today.
1: Oh, my pleasure. I had a wonderful time. I hope you invite me back.
0: Absolutely. Next week, we will have John Nigerian returning back to the show. John is the co-founder of Market Rebellion and a re- regular guest on CNBC. So that's it for this week on Investing with IBD. I'm Arusha Paris, and thanks for listening. And for this week's notes and Charts, make sure to go to investors.com podcast, where you'll find details for each episode in the podcast episode section. And make sure to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast if you haven't already. We'd really appreciate it. You can also send us your questions and comments to investingpodcast at investors.com. We would love to hear from you and may use your comments on an upcoming episode.